0: Okay. Hoggle. Him. Oh, how, oh like, a hound. I have name
1: like that. Oh, yeah, a you hound. are a hoggle, aren't you? We don't <laughs> know anything about hoggle. He's a mystery. Yeah.
2: I feel like hounds can be a little intense, maybe? I feel like
1: they're always going, how!
2: How! Yeah. Jenny and Thomas have been wanting a dog for a long time. Good with cats, unknown. Good with dogs, unknown. Good with children, unknown. Okay, too this many unknowns. Sweet.
0: Yeah, too many unknowns.
2: And they know they want a shelter dog, but there's so many to choose from, and they bring a lot of unknowns.
1: She does like to loaf around and be lazy. Me too, girl. <laughs> She's anxious when left alone.
2: Well, I- Also will me too. Well. <laughs> it's hard to know whether or how a shelter dog will fit into your family. Okay. Bruna! Is this a charming dog? No, you I not you're
1: looking for a cuddly couch potato, this is your girl. <laughs> you that's are. what we're looking for. We want couch potatoes.
2: <laughs> don't you do too, baby? Sweet, yeah.
1: loyal hound mix. House trained, that's nice.
2: In Southwest Virginia, college students are helping take away a few of those unknowns with shelter dogs. <gasps> this nice. one is the one I want. I want this one.
1: <laughs> oh, Maggie's cute.
2: Uh, a terrier. Wait, we should actually just get this
3: She's dog.
1: a scruffy little lady who is very <coughs> nervous, nervous about the world. Okay, that's... How?
3: Quiet home. Well, that was a regular
2: routine. Eh, eh,
3: for well, us. You
1: best in a home, quote, without small children. Okay, yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry, We you. love you, but we love we've you, got we have the too. small children.
2: Students at the University of Virginia, College at Wise, are learning about psychology by teaching shelter dogs some basic behaviors and tricks.
1: This is just a win-win for everybody. The students are able to practice and to learn The dogs are able to get a little bit of love. The shelters are able to get some extra attention and some resources coming their way. And even those who adopt the dogs are getting dogs that at least have some basic manners.
2: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, we're giving our animal friends a little bit of love. We'll get to those sweet pups later, but first, In the early 20th century, terrapins, a kind of turtle, were a culinary delicacy. Then humans nearly hunted them to extinction. While Americans don't eat much turtle these days, terrapin populations are still in danger from crab traps. Randy Chambers is a professor of biology at William & Mary. He's working to perfect a device for crab traps that will protect terrapins. Randy, how are terrapins different from other turtles? Many of us only think of terrapins as maybe the school mascot of Maryland, right?
4: That's right. And the terrapin is the Algonquin Indian word for turtle or even tasty turtle because historically they were eaten. But it's a species of turtle that is unique to North America as the only turtle that lives exclusively in estuaries, in those brackish water environments where freshwater and saltwater meet along the coast. And they're distributed from Cape Cod in Massachusetts down the Atlantic coast, around Florida, along the Gulf Coast, all the way to Texas. So it's a broadly distributed species, but it's the only species that lives exclusively in those estuarine environments.
2: How big are they? These are not box turtles. They're not those green turtles. They're not the ones that we used to call when I was little Mississippis or painted turtles.
4: Yeah, but they are related to freshwater pond turtles, like painted turtles and pond sliders and things like that. So they're more closely related to them than to sea turtles. Sea turtles, as you know, are very large. These terrapins range in size from maybe half a pound up to four pounds. So they're a little bigger than a box turtle but they're about the size of the common pond sliders that one sees.
2: What do they eat?
4: Everything. So in the estuarine (laughs) environment, they spend a lot of time uh, living in the salt marsh environment. So at high tide, they will access and get onto the marsh surface and probably are feeding on periwinkle snails, which are very abundant on the marsh surface. They could eat fiddler crabs. They like to eat marine worms that are burrowed in the mud, in the subtidal muds. They could catch a fish, potentially, occasionally. And uh, soft-shell crabs are probably a a delight to them, just as they are to me.
2: And who eats them?
4: Very few individuals do as adults. Uh, One of the cool predators of diamondback terrapins is the bald eagle. And uh, as eagle populations are recovering, the number of terrapins that are being eaten by eagles is increasing as well. Uh, The small turtles probably are susceptible to being eaten by lots of things just because of their small size. And turtle eggs are a delicacy for uh, many, many different nest predators, including Crows, including raccoons, opossums, coyotes, foxes, and so forth. So, a terrapin, like any good aquatic turtle, has to, em- the females have to emerge from the water to nest. And so they are crawling up onto land. And when they crawl up onto land, the potential nest predators tend to follow them around and then make quick work of their nests when they find them.
2: It used to be that people ate terrapins, right? <laughs>
4: They did. And I was not one of them. Um, uh, but back in the 1800s and early 1900s, uh, the terrapin uh, was consumed a lot. Uh, first, uh, it was one of those staples for people who were subsistence living near the water. But then increasingly, it became uh, one of those high society uh, delicacies that that uh, people were attracted to. And so some of the finer restaurants had terrapin on the menu. And in fact, if you go to the old Joy of Cooking cookbooks, there is a recipe in there for how to prepare a terrapin. And I note that sherry was the important ingredient because I just couldn't imagine being sober and eating a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> and that, and that uh, consumption of turtle in some of the greater restaurants diminished in the 1920s and then with the Great Depression in the 1930s.
2: Were they nearly hunted to extinction?
4: Yeah, commercial extinction. There were there were there was a, enough of a pressure on them for harvesting that terrapins in the Middle Atlantic region where as you noted the terrapin is the mascot of the Mar- University of Maryland, all of those turtles were pretty much consumed and they were bringing up turtles from southern states from Alabama and from Georgia up into the Middle Atlantic uh, restaurants uh, for consumption. So pretty much all the way to commercial extinction.
2: How did people catch them? I would imagine they're pretty slow and easy to get.
4: Wrong. <laughs> they are <laughs> They are very fast and elusive. Um, they have strongly webbed feet. so when they're in the water, uh, they can really, really move. So what has been used historically are either broad nets or hoop nets uh, for trapping turtles. But it's also the case that in the wintertime, especially in the more northern states, people would walk along the edges of creek banks with rods and push them into the ground until they hit a shell. And then they would know that there was a hibernating turtle underground and they would dig them up and harvest them that way. Mm. An interesting thing. And you can see people doing that if you're getting... You know, back in the day, you know, $100 for a dozen turtles or something like that, then that was a real fine to to capture turtles because you could make a lot of money by by harvesting turtles.
2: Have they rebounded since they were over hunted?
4: Over time, they began to recover and the populations have certainly are much larger now than they were back in the 1930s. They have ongoing threats, however, to their populations. We mentioned a couple of them. There are lots of nest predators, and people tend to build their homes right where terrapins like to be. Uh, But then the biggest threat seems to be the loss of terrapins in the blue crab fishery, which almost perfectly overlaps with the distribution of terrapins throughout their range along the Atlantic and Gulf Coasts.
2: How are they dying in crab traps?
4: Yeah, so the crab traps are set underwater and they're big heavy gauge chicken wire traps that are two by two by two feet cubes essentially. And there are openings in the sides of the traps and the traps are baited and the crabs swim in because they're attracted to the bait. Uh, The turtles swim in because they're inquisitive and because they are reptiles and they need access to air to breathe, they don't have that underwater and they eventually drown in these commercial crab traps and sometimes they drown in really large numbers. One of the unfortunate behaviors of terrapins is that they are social and if one turtle swims into a trap and gets captured, other turtles tend to follow to see what's going on just because they want to know what's happening. In they go and uh, sometimes we end up seeing uh, substantial mortality of turtles in single traps. The unfortunate world record for most turtles drowned in a single trap is 92. 92 no. Yeah, 92 no. dead turtles in a single trap. So this is a real problem. The most I, this is sad, the most I've ever found is 30 uh, in a trap here in Virginia. But, but, but just to pull up a trap and see 30 beautiful, I mean, these really are stunning animals, but to see 30 dead. Dead turtles just sitting there, and, and you, you can just see that they had drowned. And, and it's like, oh, there has to be something that we can do to uh, keep them out of these commercial-style crab traps. You've come up
2: with a really clever, simple device that could keep the turtles out, but the crabs keep going in.
4: Well, it's a it's it's not my device. It's one that I, I have I have made a number of modifications to an existing device that was first designed back in the late nineteen eighties by a gentleman at in New Jersey, Roger Wood. So it's called a bycatch reduction device. And all it does is narrows the opening into the commercial style crab trap so that turtles can't fit in, but crabs still can. So think about what a turtle looks like and it has a fairly high domed shaped shells, whereas crabs are much more lower slung and can you know, slide into things a lot more easily. So if you create an opening that is not as high, then the terrapin shell can't fit into the trap, but crabs still can fit in. So the overall idea ha- has not changed in, in 40 some years is that we ought to be able to have a bycatch reduction device that reduces the bycatch of turtles, but maintains the overall crab catch. So you have to have both of those things in place in order to make something that would be both economically resourceful, but also conservation-wise.
2: And what is the efficacy of them? Are we finding that, in fact, turtles stay out and even large blue crabs and others can get in?
4: So far, that is what the data show, that, that almost every study that's been done looking at bycatch reduction devices has demonstrated a 90 to 100% success rate in terms of excluding turtles from getting into commercial-style crab traps. The, the more difficult aspect is the maintenance of the, the crab catch. So uh, some studies have shown that the crab catch actually has increased in traps that are fitted with bycatch reduction devices, these BRDs, but a larger number of studies have shown a slight decrease in the crab catch, not in in terms of the crab sizes, but only in terms of the crab numbers. So, if there is a, let's say, a five to ten percent decrease in the overall number of commercial crabs that can be brought to market, then that is a going to be a significant negative for a commercial crabber and they are not going to be, that's not a good incentive for them to want to try to use bycatch reduction devices, nor is it going to attract the folks that are in charge of setting the regulations for the blue crab fishery.
2: Is there a battle underway to try to get this law in the books and is it being pushed back?
4: There is a lot of pushback in Virginia uh, where there is a really strong crab lobby because they want to maintain crabbing and they want to maintain their livelihood. A lot of these crabbers have been crabbing for generations and they don't want to see that change. But I will say that there are other states where diamondback terrapins occur, which include New York and New Jersey and Delaware and Maryland and North Carolina and Florida, all of which have enacted... Uh, bycatch reduction regulations to try to reduce the mortality of terrapins in commercial style blue crab traps. There are three different groups that one can imagine who might end up intersecting with with the terrapins in the crab fishery. One is the commercial crabbers who use commercial style crab traps two are the recreational crabbers who can also use commercial style crab traps imagine me for example going out with a commercial style crab trap and setting it in at the marsh and then the third group is are commercial style crab traps that have been lost so every year there are in virginia anyway about a half a million commercial style crab traps that are put out in the water and if any of those traps are lost because the line breaks or during a storm, the trap is moved away from where it was set, then those traps are just sitting there on the bottom. And there is a possibility then that those derelict or ghost traps end up being a major source of mortality to terrapins.
2: I know you love these turtles. What (laughs) can you say about them, about why all of us should love them also?
4: Yeah, well, they need open water, intertidal marsh, and they need the adjacent upland environments for nesting. So there is this requirement or for these turtles to have all these different pieces in place and they have to be in place in the right place in order for them to be successful and to maintain their populations. So I view the diamondback terrapin as one of those indicator species that if they're all there or if all those pieces are there at the environment, then the turtles will be there. So. So they are one of those species that if you have them, you can feel pretty good about the estuarine components are all successful. The flip side is if all the components, open water, marsh creeks, adjacent upland environments for nesting are not all connected just so, then you won't have them. And so much like the uh, canary in a coal mine, I guess the terrapin is like the canary in the estuary. And so having terrapins uh, is an indicator of how, how, uh, effective and how, how good our estuarine management has been.
2: I understand you've even written a song. <laughs> As we say goodbye to each other, would you please sing your song for me or at least part of it?
4: Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the end of it. and It's it sort of a, a takeoff from uh, Don McLean's American Pie. So uh, here we go.
0: Why, why must a terrapin die? Jibber jabber from the crabbers as the crabbers deny That BRDs can keep the turtles alive Maybe this'll be the day that they try In our commonwealth it's truly senseless That drowning turtles so defenseless Is accepted cost of doing business That stance is just unnerving The terrapin has been neglected, but crabbers feel they're disrespected. Their way of life must be protected. Their culture needs conserving. So Virginia stands at loggerheads, not sea turtles, but instead, The conflict, we already said, Tween terps and crabbing custom. And regulators need to learn To manage for the joint concerns Of crabs and terps to yield returns So terrapins can trust them. So we're singing Why, why must a terrapin die? Jibber jabber from the crabbers As the crabbers deny that BRDs can keep the turtles alive. Maybe this'll be the day that they try.
2: (laughs) Randy Chambers is a terrapin lover and a biology professor at William & Mary. Learning about learning. Is a lot easier if you've got hands-on practice. That's what inspired the first-ever Wise Minster Dog Show at the University of Virginia's College at Wise. Robert Arrowood is a psych professor there, and he helped his psychology of learning class put theory to practice by training shelter dogs. Along the way, the students at UVA Wise helped dozens of dogs from the shelter find their forever homes. Robert, you recently hosted the first-ever Wiseminster Dog Show, a take on the Westminster Dog Show. That's so adorable. How did you come up with the idea of having your psych students work with shelter dogs?
1: So for the psychology of learning class, a lot of bigger schools, when they teach it, they'll teach it with a vivarium, which is where they hold a lot of the lab rats and the test animals and the research animals. Um, We're a smaller school, so we don't have that. So as I'm setting up to teach this course, I'm thinking, what can I do to give the students some hands-on learning? And so I'm a huge dog lover. I've got three of my own. I was thinking the shelter, there are shelter dogs that need some enrichment, need a little bit of love. This should help them get a little bit of a little bit of exposure as well as make them a little more adoptable because they're trained at this point. So it just kind of popped into my head one day when I was thinking, what can I do to get my students some more experience?
2: What a cool idea. What are some of the principles of learning you're teaching in the class?
1: So the two main components that we broke this class down to involve uh, classical or Pavlovian conditioning, as well as instrumental or operant conditioning. So with Pavlovian, it doesn't so much matter what the animal or the person for that matter does. So, for instance, if, if every single time you hear a bell, you get access to food or something you like, you're going to come to expect that. Operant condition, however, it depends on the behavior of the person or the animal. So the dogs, for instance, have to do a trick in the presence of that external cue, such as the command, to get the reward. If you do a behavior and you get punished for that, you're going to reduce that behavior over time. If you do a behavior that you get rewarded for, you're going to increase that behavior over time. So those are the two big theoretical approaches that we used.
2: So give me an example of each one that you guys do with your students and the dogs.
1: Sure. So typically with training dogs, we do more instrumental or operant conditioning. Um, The classic example for Pavlovian conditioning, though, is when Pavlov would ring a bell and give his dogs food and he would measure their salivation. Eventually over time whenever the bell would ring, they would just start salivating without the presence of the food because they expected the food. On the other hand, most of what we did that builds off of Pavlovian conditioning is instrumental condition or operant. Or in that case, we would give a command, this could be anything in the environment, a bell could be a command for instance, but any sort of sound or cue, and then the animal has to do a behavior. When the animal does that behavior, that's the only time they get rewarded or punished in some cases. So I let the students be a little bit um, open with what they trained. My requirements were they had to have their dogs trained with five commands, one of which had to be a little bit more advanced. So some of the stuff that I taught them to work with were basic things like sit, stay, come, touch, that sort of thing. And so that would involve on the instrumental side of conditioning or the operant side of conditioning, they would hear some sort of cue from their environment, whether that is the verbal command of sit or the signal command. So I also taught a hand motion with it to when they see that hand and hear that cue together, the dog knows it's time to perform, basically. Whenever they get that cue, the dog then could either sit or not sit. If they don't sit, nothing happens. If they do sit, that is, they have completed that response, and they get rewarded for it. Same thing goes for something like come. In this case, it's a different verbal command. Instead of saying sit, they would say come, and it would be a different uh, hand command or hand motion. And then once again, the dog has the option to stay there, not move, or to come forward. If it comes forward, it gets the reward in that case.
2: How did you first start teaching your students in the course of the semester how to do all this?
1: The way I took the course was I broke it down into two sections. The first part of the course was heavy in theory. And the second part was when we actually went to the shelter. For that first part, though, uh, my oldest dog, Drake, I spent all of uh, winter break uh, breaking his conditioning ultimately. Oh, no. Well, during class, during that first portion, Drake would actually come in with me. And he would and I would show the students how to start eliciting behaviors with him and they would get an opportunity to practice with him because he's a very uh, low energy. He's a very relaxed dog that's I completely think is safe for anyone to work with. The students loved him, but being able to practice on him before they went to the shelter on their own to work with their dogs uh, was a huge help to them.
2: That's really amazing. Wouldn't that make him feel crazy or maybe resentful of you?
1: Initially, he's going to get what's known as frustration. Um, So there's actually a theoretical approach we talked about in class called frustration theory um, that talks about how to uh, increase behavior, reduce behavior using uh, just simple frustration. At first, he would have felt that. But then over time, just that extinction would have come in to where he would have forgot that initial behavior. But Drake's my buddy. He and I have been together for Oh, almost uh, seven years now. So he forgave me.
2: I guess he's like, oh, are you up to this again? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So what was it like when the students actually started working with their own shelter dogs? I imagine they loved it.
1: They did. Um, It was... It was just such a positive energy coming from every single one of them because I was there at the shelter with them, just watching, helping them troubleshoot things, seeing what they could do differently or what they could change, and also just seeing what they did really well. But um, while we were there, it was there was moments of a little bit of frustration from some of the students when their dog who knew a trick suddenly wasn't performing, or in other times, just sheer happiness. One of the things I always made sure that my students did Um, was make sure to give a little bit of time just to love on the dogs and give them some attention. And even if that meant just going for a little five-minute walk around the facility, just to get the dog out of there to where it just has some time for itself to burn off a little bit of energy. And it was just such a positive experience for pretty much everyone because there's nothing like just loving on on a dog that just wants to be there with you.
2: Did you lose any of the dogs to adoption along the way?
1: We lost a lot of dogs to adoption along the way. As a matter of fact, that was a good problem to have. I had students that literally two days before Wiseminster, their dog would get adopted because people were coming in left and right saying, hey, we hear dogs are being trained. We want those dogs that are being trained here. And so I know I had one group had to start over three times. Uh, I had other groups that had to start over multiple times. It It was a good problem.
2: You know, this sounds like something people should be doing everywhere.
1: I think it's a really good idea, not simply because it's my own idea, but because it's just such good experience and it's completely free. I mean, a vivarium is multi-million dollars a year. But for those of us at smaller colleges who don't have that, this is just a win-win for everybody. The students are able to practice and to learn. Um, the dogs are able to get a little bit of love. The shelters are able to get some extra attention and some resources coming their way. And even those who adopt the dogs are getting dogs that at least have some basic manners.
2: So what was the Wisemanster Dog Show like?
1: It was very well attended. It was actually, I spoke to some people afterwards who had been with the college longer than I have. And it's it was, if not the biggest, it was one of the biggest non-sporting events that the college has had post-COVID. Um, from our estimates, we didn't do an actual head count, but there were well over 200 people there, um, not counting the students, but we had, um, we kind of had our judging platform and our, a uh, little small, like one foot stage so that people could see. But around that, we also had vendors. I put out a call to pretty much everyone in Wise County who works with animals in some way. So Paws of Southwest Virginia, the Wise County Animal Hospital, the Humane Society, uh, Pet Sense, Bow Wow Bakery, all these different stores that somewhat celebrate or work with pets. Um, They had booths set up to where they could get some information out about their brand, uh, get some free samples out, sign people up for a spay neuter clinic, as well as sign dogs up for a vet visit. So there was so much more going on around the Wise Minster show as well.
2: And then I understand the vice chancellor of the University of Virginia College at Wise awarded your dog with an honorary, was it a doctorate?
1: It was an honorary dog turret, if you will, (laughs) um, just to celebrate all the work he did, because he was coming into class with me work. And I spent, like I said, winter break, breaking his training. So he spent a lot of time and it was just, it was a nice little show that the college did.
2: Well, Robert Arrowood, what a delight. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. Robert Arrowood is a psychology professor at the University of Virginia College at Wise. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. Lab rats have a pretty cushy life, and if you measure their stress levels compared to wild city rats, it shows. But what about wild country rats? Molly Kent is a biology professor at Virginia Military Institute. Her research asks questions about stress in rats, but through those questions, she's learning about human stress, too. Molly, you study stress in rats, and last summer started looking at the effects stress can have on early life in rats. What did you find? So we were looking at the effect of
3: how much bedding and nesting and kind of what makes them a home in the lab cage. And they get all the food they want, they have all the water they want, but if we restrict some of that home life area – for these rodents. We define that as bedding and nesting. And so we cut it by a quarter. So standard cages got four cups of bedding, two paper towels, restricted resources got one cup and a single half a paper towel. And what does it do to the offspring? What does it do to mom? Well, it starts, we can see that mom gives what we're terming as fragmented care her attention is divided. She's not spending as much attention as she needs to on her pups and she's looking around at all the other things going on and she's not huddling them all together to keep them warm underneath her. Where our standard cages, which is what we use all the the majority of the time, she's fine. She's on her pups. She's licking. She's grooming. She's taking care of them. But if they have a limited amount, she doesn't provide as much maternal care. And Working with students, we were trying to see, is there something going on with the pups? So one of the ways that we do that is we actually paint their tails so that we can identify which pup is which. And in the process of painting their tails, we learned that my hand got painted with one group, but it didn't with the other. And that brought about, well, okay, why is my hand painted? What did I do wrong? But it wasn't anything that I did wrong. It's looking at the rodents. Their tails were shorter which we hadn't seen in the literature, why would their tails be shorter? What What would make their tails become shorter? We looked at it, we repeated the study multiple times, and we found they were physically shorter significantly, and that showed up about seven days after they were born. So seven days in this environment, their tails became shorter. And do
2: you think they became shorter in utero because you had already, with the pregnant mothers, reduce their bedding or was it after they were born that you reduced bedding?
3: We reduced bedding the day after they were born. So it was not in utero. It was after they were born. So their genetics are already in place. Their code that says you're gonna have this much muscle and this much bone and these different things were there. But it adjusted it and it made little changes. That had to be a huge finding. We were really pumped about it. It was concerning and so we collaborated with another university and looked, does is there something physically different other than just this observation of length? And we found that there was a reduction in collagen, which makes up tendons. So there's a reduction in the tendons of these animals. And there's a reduction in bone density. So their bones are not as sturdy as if they had been in the standard bedding and nesting model.
2: So you don't think it was just that tails got shorter because we need to conserve stronger bodies elsewhere mm-hmm. where we're being stressed. Mm-hmm. We don't need our tail as much, so let's funnel resources to the rest of our body.
3: It showed up in their feet as well. Ah. So we started with the tails because that's what we saw. We physically saw, saw that first. Then we said, well, okay, is it the tails not as important? We know the tail is important to keep their temperature correct. And if mom's not giving them the the appropriate care, maybe they've got to change their tail. Temperatures in the nest didn't change. It was the same, even though mom wasn't providing the same amount of care.
2: Have you seen human stresses cause something like this before? Yes. Where we have a physiological reaction?
3: There's a study that came out of Romania many years ago that showed very similar findings. And it was termed as psychosocial dwarfism. So they had all the food, all the water, they had a place to live, but they didn't have the same amount of parental care. And they were significantly shorter than their cohort that was raised in a family home. So we see this in humans. We're now being able to mimic and see it in a rodent model to then maybe look at potential ways to circumvent the problem.
2: That's interesting. So likely... The children of the stressed mother rats, their shorter tails and smaller feet was probably caused by her lack of attention and care to them. Yes. They
3: had all the food they needed. She had all the food and water she needed. It was solely the amount of bedding and nesting, and that her care was then compromised because of that lack of bedding and nesting.
2: Doesn't it immediately want you to make sure that all mothers get lots of food, good night's rest? Plenty of good bedding and reduced stressors? Yes. And we do
3: see in mothers, there was a study that came out looking at the effect of COVID. And it's more so the stress and the fear of COVID itself that's causing issue with moms and offspring, not the disease. And this massive stress and fear of getting COVID and having problems is... Relating or is causing issues with offspring.
2: So is the stress reaction we see in the offspring caused by the mother or caused by the offspring responding to the mother, right? I think it's response to the mother. And I think it's if mom's
3: not providing that correct amount of care, and we know in rodents she's got to groom them and lick them and make sure that there's enough tactile touch support, if it's not there they have elevated stress responses as they grow up, as they get older. And so if mom isn't able to provide that care when they're younger, they have maladaptive stress responsivity later on.
2: What do you want to do further with this particular research?
3: I'd love to be able to look at the offspring and see if these differences in bone density then occur when they have their own offspring. And if that really causes this additional effect and if it's something that we need to start looking at in humans much earlier. So we're seeing these effects. If you see it in one generation, is it there in the next generation and so on? So how can we start to mitigate or fix some of these issues that we see?
2: How do you measure How stressed rats are generally?
3: We look at their corticosterone levels. So corticosterone is the stress hormone that rodents produce. Humans produce a chemical called cortisol. In rodents, it's corticosterone. And we look at that. We do it in a very different way than most people. We actually take the hormones out of their fecal matter. So we don't want to stress them out anymore by taking blood because a lot of humans, if we think about humans, you don't like to have a needle stuck in your arm or a needle stuck someplace. And maybe you don't mind pooping someplace, so we just take the the fecal matter. And we can extract the hormones from that, and it can tell us how they were feeling 12 hours earlier. And so then we can look at these hormones, and we see differences in the different steroid hormones that are produced in
2: our offspring from different bedding and nesting models. Remind me of why rats and people have stress hormones. How do they help us cope? So stress hormones
3: are really important if you're faced with a bear or a tiger and you've got to decide, am I going to stay here and potentially get eaten or can I run away? And if you're going to run away, you've got to have all your muscles ready and your heart has to be ready to do that. And you've got to recognize that this is not a good thing to be faced with a giant bear and I need to get away very quickly. So for survival, we need to be able to be stressed and stress can help us in the short term when it becomes a problem, is when stress is there all the time. And we would call that chronic stress. And chronic stress is where we see problems with getting sick a lot of times. We see issues with bones. We see issues with injuries. And mental health issues start to show up is because of that chronic stress where acute stress or short-term is actually good for us. It shows that you care about something. If you're stressed before an exam, okay, well, I have this exam coming up and this is a problem and, oh, no, but you can study better for it. You can pay attention. Your stress hormones are released every morning when you wake up to help you wake up so that you get up and you're ready for the day and you can go and do what you need to do. It's when they start to get too high and they stick around for too long that we see problems.
2: You are also looking at hormone levels of lab rats versus rats you've caught in the wild. And you've seen some really eye-opening differences in those two. What a good idea to think about checking on rats in the wild. So we started, if we think about comparing
3: rats and humans, well, rodents, when we look in the lab, are super-constrained. We keep them in a cage, we change their cage regularly, we give them all the food and all the water they need, and how does that really compare to a human? Well, Not every human has all the food and they don't get their houses cleaned on a regular basis. We have to do a lot of these things ourselves. And by looking at this wild rat, we're looking more at what maybe humans go through. We have more stressors in our lives. So how can we compare a wild rat to a lab rat? And we started by looking at a set of wild rats in Richmond with a collaborator, and he was looking at disease progression. And we said, well, what about their stress hormones? And what about... They're the organs that they need to be able to process stress and process immunity. And so we started looking at that, and there happens to be a bakery that shall remain nameless that we go out and trap the rats for them and get them away from their facility. And we take those rodents, and we take hormone samples, and we take organs, and we're able to see their stress levels are significantly higher than our lab rat which would make sense. They're not controlled. They don't know where they're getting food every day. They don't know where they're living. They don't know where they're sleeping. So they would likely have to worry about all those things, which is what a normal human has to go through, some more than others. So we started looking at these city rats, and we were looking and comparing them to age-matched as much as we could lab rats. And then the question came up, what about... Our country rats. Oh, gosh. Right. Our country rats, different. They don't have the same access to food, potentially, as our city rats. So maybe they're more stressed out. But they don't have to worry about all the cars and all the people. So we started trapping country rats at a farm in Rockbridge County. And we started taking these rats and looking at them. Well, their hormones, we haven't done their hormones yet. This is a study that we just started this summer But their their organs that produce those hormones are smaller than our city rats. And we've got their brains now to be able to look at how are their brains different. And we see in humans that if you have access to nature and you have access to what's termed green space, you have better better mental health. So maybe our country rats have better mental health, less stress than our city rats being in the city and having to worry about all the cars and the humans that could – possibly cause issues for them, they also behave differently. Our country rats are quiet. They kind of sit in their cage like, all right, you caught me. Great. Now let me go. And I, I ate all of your nice little treat that you left for me. And let's move along. Where the city rats, on the other hand, we get them in their cages. They will screech at you and make a lot of noise and jump around and show very different behavior. And we're hoping to continue to explore that to see, are they showing different kind of speaking different languages by the information and the the sounds that they're making? Or are we just not hearing it because our country rats speak slightly differently than our city rats? So we're looking to look at what are called ultrasonic vocalizations, the noises that they make to tell us, what kind of communication are city versus our country rats making? And how does that compare to our lab rat?
2: I think it was so smart of you and your colleagues to think about looking at the lives of city and country rats. It was something we initially
3: saw in some human literature outside of the U.S. In Scandinavia, they did some studies looking at green space. And if you're close to a park, what does that do for your mental health? And they saw that better mental health if you're close to a park. And we saw different – the brain reacting differently if you go for a walk in nature compared to just sitting, looking out at a cityscape. And by seeing these differences, it got us thinking, well – maybe there are actually some differences that we can test and we can start to understand why are these differences present. If we see differences in hormones, are there differences in other things in their body that could help us potentially come up with treatments or potential solutions for humans that maybe we all need to go out into nature and go for a nature walk once a day? And let's go do that instead of, stressing out about being on your cell phone or doing the different things. And if we can go out and just relax for a period of time, it may help us. So we're actually looking to start possibly doing some of this with our students, forcing them to go out into nature and looking at their hormones. And they're not allowed to have their cell phones. We're going to take those away from them and take hormone samples while they're out there. And just, just being in nature also do similar things in humans.
2: Molly Kent, thank you so much for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you. Molly Kent is a biology professor at Virginia Military Institute. Are there undiscovered animals lurking in plain sight? My next guest says yes. Tara Pelletier says even if animals look the same to our human eyes, they can have genetic differences that make them different species. Tara Palatier is a biology professor at Radford University. She's been finding and sharing genetic data to get a sense of how many unknown animal species there might be out in the world.
5: All species have genetic variation within the species. But when we talk about how many elephant species exist on the planet, we've explored all the populations of elephants and we know how many species exist they're kind of easy to observe. Um, But when small mammals, there's this like hidden level of species diversity. They're hard to see, right? Because they're small, they're hidden in these places. Um, So we don't know that they're different species until we look at their DNA. When you start looking at their DNA, you can see that they're actually very different from each other. What's been exciting
2: for you recently as you're entering data into the database that's shared worldwide?
5: Yeah. So there's a couple of different things that make me really excited about it. Part of me just loves the data science aspect of it and like sharing data and making data available to lots of people. Um, and then, you know, when we're thinking about the evolutionary processes that produce biodiversity. We're sort of looking at recent evolutionary processes and like the process of speciation. And so we can start to understand how that happens and why that happens and kind of explain how and why biodiversity looks the way it does across the globe. Um, we're also finding specific geographic areas that have higher levels of cryptic diversity. So we can sort of focus on geographic areas where we there could be more sort of field expeditions and DNA sequencing to sort of describe biodiversity that we don't know about yet. So we're sort of helping to target and make more efficient some of this species discovery work. You primarily study salamanders in your region
2: of southern Appalachia. Have you been out fairly recently looking for salamanders?
5: Um, so that's an interesting question because I used to do a lot of field work with salamanders. The last few years I've been doing a lot more of this like computational work, but I'm trying to get a project set up where I can go out in the field around here in the southern Appalachians and start looking more closely at salamanders and so if we find some areas where we think that there's more diversity than has been discovered we can go out in the field and collect more data and try to say hey we have different species here and then start even thinking about like more in more detail like what is contributing to the diversification of salamanders in this particular spot or in this particular group so that's kind of like the next step for me hopefully
2: what was it like when you were looking for them how would you go about that
5: Yeah, it's actually, I think it's pretty fun. Whenever I smell wet dirt, it makes me think of salamanders. But I would find a spot (laughs) that looked sort of had a good canopy cover and I would flip over rocks and logs and just hope that they would be there. After enough experience, you kind of figure out which ones to to flip over. Um, But it's, it's a lot of wet dirt. I would be out in the rain a lot. Um, So in some ways, it's like kind of miserable, but also awesome at the same time.
2: Were your salamanders typically living in streams? Are they more like in wet dirt under logs?
5: So you can find salamanders in both of those places. I specifically studied more terrestrial salamanders. So I would be looking under rocks and logs um, just in a forested area as opposed to specifically going to ponds and streams, which is like kind of what most people think of when you think of salamanders. Um, But there are like there are a lot of them out there in the forest that you just like you're probably walking right on top of them if you're out in the woods and you don't even realize you're doing it.
2: Give me an example, if you can channel it, because you might have just been doing this by instinct after a while. How would you know where you were likely to find a log that would be more salamander rich than another log?
5: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. It did take a lot of trial and error. Um, But if it's sort of like a cooler part of the forest where there's a lot of canopy cover, like there's not a lot of sun, it's like kind of moist and a decent sized rocker log you know you don't want to find something small and as i'm saying this though i do want to sort of point out that i don't always just do it for fun because i like to sort of not bother salamanders too much if i can help it you know so it it is fun to do but i i usually i also try to leave them alone a little bit too and you're telling us
2: please leave them alone
5: (laughs) yeah you know i want to encourage people to look for cool stuff in nature um But, you know, you kind of want to not disturb it. Like if I flip over a rock or a log, I always make sure I put it back exactly how I found it.
2: What do you think the implication is down the road of your work? I get that you're looking for salamanders or now you're crunching the DNA numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Entering things into a vast database. What ultimately matters about this?
5: So, yeah, again, I think there's like two different ways to look at it. Like for me, um, just understanding evolutionary processes and how biodiversity is created just brings me like joy. And I think that there is innate value in biodiversity and species. Um, But there's some practical implications, too, if we think about conservation. Um, If we we need to know what's there, if we're going to protect it. And if we want to find geographic space that's worth protecting, you know, we can maximize those efforts by, knowing how much diversity is there, thinking about the diversity of the species that exist in a particular area, um, and just like how things respond to changes over time can help us sort of predict how things might respond to changes in the future.
2: You know, a lot of times there are battles over a certain salamander species and the habitat being disturbed by new construction or development, that kind of thing. I think often the people who want to leave the salamander habit intact are not only wanting to defend the salamanders themselves yes, but it's also to let be this plot of land which can continue undisturbed in its many marvelous formations right
5: Yeah, that's sort of the the thing there right It's not even just the salamanders it's all the organisms that live in that particular geographic space. Um, so it's a trade-off you know we have to, Uh, we're humans, we develop and we need space to do things. But I think that the trick is making sure that we are also protecting other space because, you know, long term, we need healthy ecosystems intact, and we just need space for that to happen. And if you see salamanders in a particular area, you know that there's a lot of stuff going on there, right? There's lots of insects and fungi and birds and small mammals all in that same space.
2: Before I let you go, I have to ask you about a word you used a few minutes ago where you Mm -hmm. talked about your joy in doing this work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Can you help us understand the feeling of joy you have as you're using this equipment in the
5: lab and doing this work? Yeah, I don't even... um, That's almost like hard to explain sometimes. Like when I'm just playing with the data and there's like patterns that come out or I see something new... It's just, there's this level of satisfaction, like, oh, I'm like really contributing to understanding how things work. And I just, it's really satisfying. I totally get
2: that. And I can hear that. Tara Pelletier, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. Tara Pelletier is a biology professor at Radford University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quants, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.